0: This is episode number 126 of Patrick Jones Baseball and on this episode we have Dr. Josh Heenan. Dr. Heenan is the president of Advanced Therapy Performance. Um, He is the creator of 90 mile per hour formula and he talks a lot about what it actually takes to not only throw 90 miles an hour but to do it in a safe and effective way, so he kind of has a, a checklist of these different things that you you need you should be able to hit um, in the weight room, and goes over the different exercises. And if you can do these and do the certain amount of weight, then the chances of you being able to a ninety throw ninety miles per hour um, increase, and then the chances of you getting hurt if you do throw ninety uh, go down and decrease. So it's pretty cool stuff. Um, I don't have a pitching background. So I like bringing guys on because I really like to learn about that stuff because I I coach baseball. And like I said, that's just, that's not my background. So I'm really happy that I could bring on um, uh, Dr. Heenan and and kind of explain so I could learn. And I know that everyone else um, listening to this will be able to learn as well. So if you're interested in following Dr. Heenan on social media, if you go to Instagram, um, at Dr. Heenan, H-E-E-N-A-N, that's his Instagram a tag and so just go follow him if you're interested in, in learning more and I think uh, I think this is going to be a good one I really do I think uh, you guys will really enjoy this one ladies and gentlemen without further ado my guest Dr. Josh Heenan. <laughs> All right, and we are now live with Dr. Josh Heenan, who is the president of Advanced Therapy Performance. Uh, really appreciate you coming on today, man.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Well, I was, uh, I know we were just talking a few minutes ago uh, before we started recording, and I've seen you travel all over the place. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, buddies with Robbie Rowland, and, 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 and I was on his podcast. He came on mine, and I know he's always doing stuff with you. And you actually just said that, like, he, he literally moved what was it to Denver? And then like when you moved to Omaha, then he moved with you to Omaha just to train with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, Robbie's Robbie's dedicated. I think, um, you know, a good, a good quick synopsis of him. He got, he had a lat injury um, and had seen a lot of different professionals and, and it, it, unfortunately nobody really gave him the time of day. And they kind of just looked at him, had him raise go, you know, wait two hours in the lobby go into the office, check him out for 20 seconds, have him raise his arm and say, yeah, you know, go back to throwing, you'll be okay. And, and you know, when he flew out to Denver to work with me originally, um, we, you know, I spent probably two or three hours assessing him, evaluating, talking to him, see where his game plan was. And and he really was just dedicated on, on trying to get this done correctly. So he moved to Denver with me. Um, I was finishing up a, a master's in uh, acupuncture and then I I was moving back home uh to my family in Omaha and he decided that he wanted to continue his rehab and ended up having a uh, procedure done in that time frame and he moved to Omaha now, so I'm stuck with him for a little bit longer. Uh so you're from <laughs> Omaha. Did you go to uh, I like Creighton or No, I'm um, I'm from I'm from Boston originally. Oh that's um right, Yeah, yeah, I'm from Boston and moved to Connecticut for the majority of my um my adult years thus far, and then my wife got a residency out here, so Um, We're out here for two more years. How do you like Omaha? It's good. It's a it's a nice city. Everybody's super friendly Um, It's kind of super low-key for me. I'm from, you know near Boston and then the Fairfield County area where it's kind of kind of a lot more hectic a lot crazier. So this is a lot slower pace of life and uh, and you know, we got locations in Connecticut and and brick-and-mortar locations in Connecticut. So I'm I'm constantly kind of bouncing back and forth around the country, which is it's fun, but it's uh, this isn't our forever home, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, my 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 family, or a big part of my family is
0: from Omaha. Like my mom went to Creighton; she went to medical school there as well. And um, her sisters, my aunts, they all still live in Omaha. So I actually, I don't think I'll be back this year. But usually, every year, I at least go to Omaha at least one time to go visit. But I I like it a lot.
1: It's it's a great, you know what? I think it's I think it's one of those towns that I would love to be in, um, and visit regularly. But I it's just not. Based on all the directions that my life is at, mm-hmm. and where my family is across the country and stuff, it just isn't. It just isn't my forever home. But next time you're in Omaha, make sure you hit me oh, up. Oh, I
0: will, man. Well, I'll make sure. To, I it, need to start working out more regularly, lose some weight here. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I mean, again, I've been following your stuff online, and I've been seeing you um, kind of, you know, on different podcasts. And I, I had a couple of people reach out and say, like, you know, they recommended you to come on. And I'm just looking over, you know, a lot of your your content right now. And first off, you do a really, really good job. Of, like on Instagram is really where I, I mainly found you at. But like, what's your social media strategy? Is it just put out as much as you can? Is it focused on, you know, upper body one day, lower the next? Like, how do you do it?
1: Well, thank you. Um, honestly, I kind of go kind of go off the cuff. I, I'm not someone that sits down. I'm I'm very organized with some things um, in like our business strategy, but in terms of content, I really want to just. Follow where the questions are leading me in the comments that people um, put on the post. So, so if something comes up, I try to I try to follow it up immediately with what people are asking for. Um, I don't really ever have a big long term plan of of what we're trying to get out in terms of um, you know hitting one thing one day and something else the next day. It's just about getting good quality information out uh, and making sure that it's um, being understood the way that that I want people to perceive it because there's, you know, there's only so much time in a day and I try to be really direct with with my approach. And I think some people take that as, you know, me being a jerk. And that's okay. I'm okay with being a little misunderstood with that. Uh, It's going to happen. But really just trying to, you know, serve the the audience that's, you know, dedicating some of their time of their day to interact with me. And I I might as well, you know, go the next level and try to interact with them.
0: You clearly, I mean, just by reading over your posts, I mean you, you, you know a lot about the body and how it works. Um, how long do you like, how How long did it take you to, to get to where you're at, where you have all this knowledge of, uh, you know, really understanding how the the human body moves and injuries and you know rehab and all just everything you know today?
1: Uh, that's a, interesting. I mean, I feel like I really do feel like the more we dig into the rabbit holes of of sports performance and therapy and and um, alternative medicines and stuff, I, I really feel like I only have the surface scratched with a lot of things. Um, my my wife asked me the other day, um, you know, what what she thinks, like what do I think helped get me to the finish line of being able to work and develop athletes, um, how we do as a company so quickly. And for me, you know, when I was when I was nineteen, twenty years old. I would be, you know, from the hours of 9 p.m. to 2 or 3 a.m., I'd be reading research articles, I'd be reading T Nation, I'd be reading all these things, and then we'd be implementing it with, with the athletes and in the therapy patients I was working with. So it was just constantly evolving. And it's the same, you know, it's the same thing I'm sure that you went through with, with all of your, your hitting work. It's like it's practice and then reading and then your own interest. And, and by the time I got under the... Um, got to work alongside some really good therapists and personal trainers and strength coaches, um, that really rubbed off on me. And I think, you know, early twenties is where I started to really hit my stride and and at least have a really solid overview of the body and how, and how it's viewed in different lenses, whether it's in a, you know, typical Western minded medicine where it's anatomy, physiology, this is how we're going to attack a problem, um, in an orthopedic, clinical setting in terms of like therapy. And then also, and then also more side, um, more so the sports performance, um, and the Eastern medicine philosophies and how they really do all kind of overlap and play together. So I think trying to dig into those and, and get a real good understanding of it, of not, not having all the answers, but understanding why someone's perspective is going to, um, you know, why one methodology is going to give us uh, that perspective versus another methodology. And I think when you can understand and put yourself in someone else's shoes like that or in different perspectives, it gives you a really good broad knowledge base and at least perspective of what tools may be more appropriate for an athlete or a patient at a given time.
0: Do you, do you think that, cause I know what we're gonna get into and I'm gonna ask you about the 90 mile an hour formula and some other things um, for pitching coaches out there listening, do you think it's important for them to have a grasp understanding of of the body or maybe they just need to kind of like just very, very little understanding and just kind of just trust their eyes? Because I know it's, like on social it, media, we're having like a huge uproar of like movement assessments and like this and just like all sorts of different things. And you have to know like anatomy. And I'm just curious from your perspective, like, do you think that's necessary? <sighs>
1: I think there's I think there's many different roles that could be played. Uh, it's it's an interesting question because if you take a true hitting coach, if your role is going to be a hitting coach, understanding anatomy and and how the body moves is important. Um, but approach is, you know, just as important as, as anatomy when when you're talking strictly hitting. Uh, I think I think you look at a lot of the professionals out there now are trying to hybrid all of those things, which is great. And I think it gives them a different skill set. The issue is, is that, you know, I've been, I've probably taken a couple thousand hours of anatomy, whether it's in a school setting, whether it's in a, um, outside of school setting, um, where I'm taking courses, things like that. And I still feel like I have a lot of anatomy questions. So it's, it's very unique in terms of what the role is going to be. There's plenty of Um, hitting coaches and pitching coaches we work with locally, like in our Connecticut offices, that really don't understand anatomy that well, but they understand where a pitcher should be at a given time and why that may lead to different issues or why their command may be down. And them at least respecting our role of the strength and conditioning performance coaches to collaborate together gives them the leg up and I think and I think just knowing where your strength and weaknesses are and then being able to backfill them with the professionals that can help you is really how you're going to be able to develop something there's for instance Robbie we were talking about Robbie a minute ago about some uh, his um, his injury and, and how he came to train with me Robbie and I hopped on a plane and went to see one of my one of my colleagues who's a good friend uh, in Arizona because I wanted to get a second opinion from someone else that had a different perspective of his of his um, his injury because it was, it was a unique injury that, that, um, you know, a lot of the doctors that were looking at him really had a lot of questions and I wanted someone else's perspective so that it would help us make a better decision. And I think, I think the hitting coaches and the pitching coaches and the sports performance coaches got to just know where their strengths lie and then try to fill them in with, with other coaches that can help supplement that. So focus, really hone
0: in on your strengths and don't Mm -hmm. necessarily focus so much on your weaknesses yes I mean. and i think
1: and i think that you know if you if you're a 22 year old hitting coach you played in high school uh, high school and college and you're hitting coach now learning anatomy is a is a huge asset and it's going to help it's going to help you be a better coach but there's only so much you can learn without trying to become something else and I think, I think knowing where your strengths lie and then trying to do the best you can and then surround yourself with people that are, are smarter than you in different fields really offers a lot in terms of you being able to, most importantly, get your athlete in the hands of the right person at the right time for the right mechanical flaw or, right, or, or, or injury or anything like that so that you can get the quickest results possible.
0: Right. And you brought up a good point right there when you were talking before about kind of sticking like staying in your lane in a sense and I, I feel like that's a what I see a lot in the in the hitting world online is I see all these coaches using all these you know technical terms whether it's anatomy or, or whatnot and I mean I, I don't get me wrong I'm not trying to like put them down or anything but I mean it's like you could still know all those terms in the world and everything look great on Twitter and be a terrible coach. Like it, it just right. it doesn't you know what I mean like and that's why I sometimes like everyone praises someone because of all of the content like that doesn't mean you're a good coach at all. Absolutely, and and I think I mean and in fact, I, I don't it, want to say just that. I mean it, I'm not saying you can't be an idiot and it makes sense online either. <laughs> like you know what I mean, right? So I don't know. Yeah,
1: it's I think I think you know we're we're in a very we're in a very unique time of the volume of information and quality of content, um, which, which is, it can be very good and very bad. But for the most part, I think the lanes that, you know, at least the circles that you and I are running in where if people are debating, we're debating that last 5% of what's right and what's wrong. We're not debating the, the 90% that we already kind of all agree on. And, and I think, I think just surrounding yourself with those people and learning more is always going to be really good. There's there's a reason why I'll go in and and sit in on a surgery and see a UCL repair from a surgeon that that we're working with, not because I want to go learn surgery, but I want to understand their perspective on it and then be able to step back and be like, oh wow, that makes sense for for why we're gonna attack this rehab a little bit differently, um, versus you know not understanding what they're coming where they're coming from. And I think I think like you said, it's just it's we have so much information that we just need to figure out um, how we're going to best be able to help our athletes. And and that you know, as Robbie was saying to me this morning, we, like we were talking off um, before we got on on the call. Um, the thing that that he really likes about all of your work, and the thing that I've seen with with your work online, is that you know you, you really put the athlete first. And I think I think at the end of the day, if we're putting the athlete first. We're gonna get the most out of them, and and we're gonna be able to check our ego at the door, and make sure that that their results, in their health, and their well-being, and their longevity is going to be the driver of 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 our decision making. Then that allows us to step back and say, I'm not the best person for this right now.
0: Mm, I like that. Well, I appreciate the the compliment. That, that means a lot, and especially I we were talking before, and Robbie. I mean I. I can't keep up. He puts out so much content. I mean, it is it is impressive because, and I'm sure you, you know this a little bit too, I it, it can take a toll on you a little bit because it's like it's not your job. I mean, it is, but it isn't in a sense. So it's, it's, it's tough, but he does a, a great job. But w- I want to really start digging into um, kind of what you specifically do now. And I put something up on Instagram yesterday and got a ton of different questions. Um, I'm, obviously, I can't ask all of them, but there's a few that I really wanted to kind of uh, hear what you have to say, and the first one was, um, you know, what was the process uh, for you t- for uh, identifying and kind of helping implement the 90-mile-per-hour formula?
1: So the 90 mile per hour formula is something I've created. I was a pitcher in high school, um, and, and really it backfills into I was undersized. I was strong. I was very strong pound for pound. Um, I was 5'9", 145, 150 pounds. Uh, I topped out at 85, uh, I long tossed about 360 and and that was that was pretty much it and I didn't understand why that as I transitioned to college you know I pitched okay in, in a junior college level and that was pretty much it. Um, I couldn't figure out why I was able to throw the ball so damn far yet I couldn't I couldn't get that velocity on the mound and as I became a strength coach in the college setting, I realized there's a lot of commonalities that we were seeing with guys that were, that were you know middle infielders that you throw them on the bump one day to 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 you know eat some innings and they're ninety two ninety four um, and they don't they're not pitchers yet you have a guy who's you know projectable as a big league pitcher pitcher that's on the same roster that's weaker doesn't move as well and he's in and um, you know he his velocity on the mound is, is so low compared to the guy who's just athletic and then started to tease out those qual- uh, those qualities of. The strength metrics. So the strength metrics are um, based on a lunge, a deadlift, a chin up, and then a long toss to kind of uh, cap it out. But the strength metrics, I started to see that that a lot of the guys who were really really strong in the gym and poor on the field were strong at the wrong exercises. So for me, it was just literally pen and paper recording these things and saying, "Hey, why? Like red flag. Like why is this guy throwing the absolute piss out of the ball?" and this other guy isn't. And then we started to see that there was body weight metrics in there. And, and after it got about 500 data points, I started to realize that the trends were very obvious that there's a size component. Um, and the lunge component was really big. It was seemed to be always the missing link. Um, and then a minimum of a, you know, a deadlift and a chin up component. So it was just seeing those values. And then after seeing them enough, we did about another thousand, about 1500 extra tests on different athletes from there, and the numbers just kept coming back. That was very simple. And then I would look at someone and say, "Listen, like your lunge is really low compared to our standard. Everything else you meet or exceed. Why don't you Why don't you try to focus on your lunge for the next three or four phases?" And guys would go from you know 82 to 90 in a three month phase. And the only uh, and the only difference would be their lunge numbers really changing. The mechanics didn't change. Their body weight didn't change. So. It was really just trial and error. When you say lunge, is that bar-
0: barbell, dumbbell? Does it matter?
1: We, so when we test, and there's there's a clear distinction that, that should be made. Anybody that follows the formula stuff will see that there's metrics that, that we lay out that is the formula. When we test, we test a back-loaded reverse lunge. Um, so barbell on your back, strap on weight, and then either we want to be able to do 10 reps of Um, external load with your body weight on it. So if I'm 200 pounds, I want to have 200 pounds, uh, including the bar on my back for 10 reps on each side of reverse lunge, or we want one and a half times your body weight. So a 200 pound person would be 300 pounds load doing it for one rep. Um, That is, that is our, that is our indicator. It is not how we train. We train to build better athletes, but we use those numbers as our, as a, Uh, checks and balances to drive our decision making when programming our athletes
0: when now i know you right before you said uh chin up so
1: does it matter which way your hands are facing when you're doing those we test we test supinated chin ups so hand palms facing yourself and it's a for the 90 mile hour formula it's a 250 pound total chin up um total weight chin up so if i'm 200 pounds strap on 50 pounds full extension to a hang and then lifting yourself up leading with your chest chest touching the bar uh and then controlling yourself back down that is a full chin up um we we see that as a great indicator of total trunk stability upper back strength shoulder mobility and the ability to decelerate and control the, the long arm just like you would when you go to throw a baseball just one just one that's all we're looking for there okay.
0: so it's just like hitting the kind of just the base components now you said like we we're when you they say nice and slow and controlled back down brings me to my next point which is eccentric exercises i know um for me i all i've really heard about is doing the eccentric exercises where the, you pull a hamstring and you're on the dl and you're trying to get your hamstring stronger again um is there a component to eccentric that helps with just getting stronger in general that you don't have to just do it when you're hurt
1: yes so so there's, there's research that, that says that we can be somewhere we should be on a standard curve for a healthy athlete. We should be about 30 to 50 percent stronger in our eccentric contractions. So the argument would be that if you' if you can crank out um, one good chin up at 200 pounds and pull yourself up and bring yourself back down, you should be able to do upwards of 300 pounds loading yourself up, Bring it starting at the top of the position of a chin up Mm -hmm. and letting yourself go long. So that's your eccentric portion. What we know is that the eccentric portion is the deceleration. It's the elongating of the muscles. So that's where most injuries in my experience occur. It's where we have a lot of, it's a lot of the, um, severely debilitating or, or surgical candidate injuries come into play. So we train eccentrics quite often in terms of making sure that the balance is there because as I say a lot of times the formula is great in terms of saying hey this is a prediction that you if you can hit the formula you have 90 in the tank. We know that you're big enough, you're strong enough, you move well enough, you have you have the uh arm mechanics to get you there. The biggest liability is that people, you know, people come back and say, well, you know, I throw 90, I throw 95, and I can't even come close to hitting any of those metrics on the formula. Well, we have data that backs that if you can't hit those numbers, you have an increased odds of a UCL surgery. So, mm-hmm. so if there's nothing scares me more than a 150 pound, six foot two guy that throws 92, 93 out of high school, and can't do a chin up, can't do a good push up, barely deadlifts their body weight um, can't lunge without toppling over those, those are liabilities to me because you haven't earned the right to move, um, with, with that amount of force yet. But a lot of athletes are just, are just strong enough and powerful enough to, to do the movement, but they can't decelerate it. If you can't decelerate it, that's where injuries happen.
0: So for those kids, they should just shut down playing until they get strong. And that's so just, it, yeah, it's just, that's, that's just, yeah. yeah. Like
1: if, if we're taking a, if we're taking a, a a Very broad approach. Yes, there's a lot of athletes that we have that we are You know, my number one goal is always to keep our athletes healthy and safe for the long term I never want one of our guys to make it to the big leagues and and Go through all the process of getting there and then be on the DL for a year because they tore their UCL That's my goal is to get them there and then keep them there as long as humanly possible um, For for those athletes, it's it's balancing are you a liability? What What's the upside of playing right now? And it, it, it's a constant balance that you got to take with every single case is a unique, unique, um, you know, snowflake of a case and, and health history and their short term and long term goals. And, and I mean, my argument is always they should shut it down because if you're injured, you're worthless. You're not going to be nobody's going to be recruiting a guy that's, you know, oh, he throws 92, but he's you know, he can't play because he has elbow pain every time he throws. That's not going to help you.
0: What's I've I've asked this before several times, but I'm curious. I know you talked about they're at a, a higher increase for Tommy John if they can't meet some of those metrics that you just talked about. What are some other reasons you think that players um, or why are so
1: many players need Tommy John? Um, really, it comes down to. You know, the strength is one little piece um, of the of the whole puzzle. Genetics obviously plays a role. There's there's a component that we we are absolutely not going to be able to control um, just purely based on, you know, uh, your family history and and, you know, how resilient your body is. Some people are just a little bit more fragile than others. And then and then looking at quality of reps and quality of movement. Um, you know, I had a guy message me the other day and and make a comment that that, um, you know, he hits all the formula and he, he touches 95, he hits the whole formula and he had Tommy John surgery. And basically that the formula is BS. Like I shouldn't be promoting it as, as something that's going to reduce your chances or prevent UCL injuries. We can't prevent US, UCL injuries. We know that. That is anybody that says they're preventing an injury. It, it doesn't understand that you you can't prevent something um, like that. We can, we can modify the odds, but, in the long, but in the um, big picture, we're not gonna prevent anything. We're just modifying those odds. Now, what, what this athlete and I discussed and that, that he didn't really consider was, he got to college, he was he was sitting near 90 as he got to college, um, 88 to 89. And at one point in high school, he was touching 88 um, at 150 some odd pounds uh, at 6'2". So why are we, disc- you know, some of the reps that he took when he was younger, where he wasn't big enough, strong enough, um, have enough uh, ability to decelerate, which probably means his mechanics were not as optimal as they could be. Our mechanics do do often change when we get bigger and stronger because our movement capacity gets improved because we're more efficient. Um, you know, we he's not counting the reps that he took as a younger high school athlete that may have been the underlying factor of why he had so many issues when he was younger and that doesn't even uh, excuse me when he was older he may have had reps that were you know slowly chipping away at that ucl over a long period of time and now he just hit a threshold where his ucl finally gave way Um, there's obviously there's overuse injuries that come into play there's movement capacity things that come into play mechanics come into play there's so many moving parts it's hard to tease those out um, in a real grand study that we can look at and say, oh, this is, this is the number one factor, you know,
0: how, speaking of mechanics, how would you correct, um, an arm? Like if someone has a bad arm path or something like that, how would, like, what's the best way to go about that? I have no idea from a pitching mechanic standpoint.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very unique. Um, I think to each individual and we look for, we look for validation in video of what their issue is and then, and then how we can most, efficiently correct that issue so so a lot of times we'll have guys with elbow pain um and they'll have a typical like inverted w where where they when their front foot lands their um hand is below their their throwing arm their hand is below their elbow and they have elbow pain when they throw and counter to a lot of um a lot of different therapies and interventions we'll have them grab a weighted ball and and just see what happens and we'll take video and a lot of times most of the time we get guys that will take a five-ounce ball and be in a typical inverted W, where their hand uh, is below their elbow, and we'll have them a seven-ounce ball, and all of a sudden they're almost, you know, at their ear when their front foot hits the ground. So their hand is is up about three or four inches, and all of a sudden their elbow pain goes away. So. When, when looking at that, we just evaluate and say, what what is the end goal? Where do, what do we want this athlete to look like? And then we ask the athlete and the pitching coach and the families and we say, all right, where, where do you want this to end? Um, and a lot of times that's the position they want them to be in. And if we can modify those things by giving them quality of reps that allow their brain and their neurological system to say, hey, this is the position we want to be in, that carries over very quickly to um, – to their throwing mechanics in games and with a five ounce ball. So it's just picking the right tool for the right athlete. And it's, you know, I'm sure it's the same thing that you do with your, with your hitting athletes. It's like some guys may just really need to work on T work or flips or, or a heavier bat or a lighter bat or, or thinking about driving the ball to the, to the right side instead of pulling it. Like there's, it's just picking the right tool for the right athlete. Sometimes it's a weighted ball. Sometimes it's shutting it down and, Getting a surgery, sometimes it's some soft tissue work, and sometimes it's it's literally just getting stronger and moving better in general.
0: I was reading on, on um, online. I think it might have been Kyle Bodie who actually tweeted this out. How kids at a at
1: a young age, the
0: reason why so many kids have bad mechanics. I'm pretty sure this is what this is what he was saying is is because their dads are always tossing with them, and like you can like imagine like a dad like trying to flip the ball, you know, like a basically like a shooting basketball where it's just like terrible form and so the kid sees that and, and, and actually emulates it right back because that's what he sees and what he was saying is it would be better to like just tell, have a kid uh, grab a ball and just tell him throw it as hard as you can into the fence and that you'll move more efficiently that way I kid the kid will um, because he has nothing to really model it off after and naturally mo- most of the time like it's going to be uh, more of an optimal movement pattern what do you, do you agree with that like have you
1: noticed that i i do i do i actually i agree with that a lot and um i have not i have not heard him i have not seen that or heard him say that but that makes that i completely uh prescribe to that what what it might i might have been i think it
0: might have been kyle bode i think i think kyle bode said it and i want to make sure i think it was lance wheeler he got it from so i want to make sure i said that too gotcha
1: yeah and um and you know something else that we see um, very com- very common, especially now. I think with with um, the the kids that are not like quote unquote playing as much, and I mean play as in in terms of like playing other sports and just like being kids running around playing tag, things like that. Just being general like uh, athletes when they're little, what we see is that they just don't move that well. They're not that strong, and they have a ton of instabilities. So something simple that we'll do, um, you know, if we get if we get a ten year old that comes in. In the in the rehab setting in the therapy setting, and he has just awful mechanics, and you're and he's got elbow pain or shoulder pain. One of the first things we'll do is not we don't we don't try to load up a weighted ball right away. What we'll do is we'll give him a counterbalance. So we might give him a uh, you know a seven twelve two uh, ounce ball or a two pound plyo ball. Throw it in their glove, and what we know. Um, From from our experiences is that most guys that like that little nine or ten-year-old if they have that classical inverted W Where where their their hand is below their elbow when they go to throw if we give them a counterbalance something in the front they they automatically almost always get their arm immediately back up into the right positions. So to me, we what do we do? We added we added external stability. We added an external load that forces that internal stability on that front side. And with that front side bracing, we get that natural arm pattern to get better. So so we'll use that as a, a corrective mechanism. Um, I have I have friends who are you know coaching little league, and they're like you know we have guys some guys that are just awful arm mechanics. What do we do? And when you're, you know, when you're coaching, literally it gets like, it's like hurting, you know, hurting cats at some points. It's like, you just got to get kids in the right spot. And so I, so I tell them, I'm like, you know, take, take a couple of the kids aside, have them play catch. You don't even have to have them really know and have them put a counterbalance in that front glove. Um, and just see, just see what happens. And a lot of times it just naturally corrects it. So then they'll just play catch and they'll just have a counterbalance in that glove. Um, when they're, when they're going to throw, which will in turn get them better reps and more quality reps in that position, which in turn will start building those patterns. Just like Kyle's saying, like, like you're going to model those patterns after your brain is going to perceive whatever pattern you give it on a regular basis. And what we're trying to do is trying to trick the pattern and say, hey, like, let's get the right positions in. And then as we as you get better, we're going to take away that that counterbalance. And hopefully it's going to carry over for you. Isn't
0: that, I mean, you said that, you know, you were talking about a 10-year-old. Isn't that insane that a 10-year-old gonna have elbow pain about throwing a,
1: throwing a ball like 20 miles an hour? The the thing that blows my mind even more is that people don't think that's a big deal. They're like, oh, yeah, you play baseball, you're going to have shoulder and elbow pain. I, I don't know. I think that's the crazy thing. Have you, what's, have you seen uh, kids,
0: like, what's the youngest age you've seen a kid with uh, get an arm surgery?
1: surgery we've seen we've seen some elbows at at 11 12 and usually that's usually that's a um you know typical quote unquote uh medial uh medial epicondyle where they just drill it in or a little eager's elbow um is like it is is a surgery we'll see somewhat regularly um at least once a year we'll get something that's referred to us like that um every once in a while you'll see blips of a little bit more often um, you know, we we've had kids that are in as, as young as like seven that are like have like elbow yeah, which is nuts. It's absolutely nuts. And then and then you get into the whole thing of is it playing it it and and it's again it's like we're there's so many moving parts to this. Is it the kid's just not that athletic and not and and doesn't move that well? Is he playing just too much baseball? Um, is he is he just a bad mover? Is he weak? It you know what what is it? is it genetic? Um, I don't think, I honestly think for the most part on the, especially the younger stuff, I think genetic is kind of a cop out. I think, oh, like dad had elbow pain and shoulder pain. Well, you know, maybe dad moved like garbage too. Like, yeah. you know, that's yeah, that's that's my take. But, but I always want to take the approach of like, at the end of the day, somehow it's gotta be our fault as therapists and strength coaches and, and performance coaches and, and hitting coaches and pitching coaches. Like at some point you have to take that home and be like, all right, what can I do to change this? and for us it's it's just making sure that we inform the families as best we can and making sure that we're we're using the right tools for the right right kids at the right time you know for oh yeah for sure what what have you seen um
0: what have you seen from from kids or just people people in general baseball players who would try to come back from a labrum surgery or rotator cuff surgery i guess just What's the difference between the two? Is one more likely to have, you know, they're able to come back more successfully
1: than the other one? Like, what do you see more often? Um, We see a lot more labrums than rotator cuff stuff, um, and that's in terms of surgery. And that's probably because rotator cuff damage, for the most part, is pretty typical, at least according to, like, MRI readings. So if you take someone that's played baseball For 15 years of their life there's a good chance that they have some kind of rotator cuff degeneration um, regardless of if they're in pain or not Uh, labral tears same thing so the issue becomes what is what is the what is the largest domino for that person we've had we've had guys that have you know collisions that have 360 degree full tears of their labrum and every time that they go to swing their their shoulder pops out of the socket of course those guys need labral surgeries but but we know that you know blind studies taking healthy guys in the MLB with no shoulder pain um, i believe it's 86% of them will have will have labral tears degeneration things like that in the shoulder and those are healthy pop- those are healthy baseball players so to me the the rehab is usually is usually i would say similar in terms of the Length of time to get back sometimes the rotator cuff can take a little bit longer depending on depending on the actual procedure done But for us most of the most of the issues we see those are the symptoms of Not having enough mobility not moving well enough not being strong enough um, Not being able to have um, Good enough arm mechanics and then figuring out what those big dominoes are so for instance um, an elbow surgery, uh, you know a typical UCL surgery Every single person that we see with a UCL surgery on a regular basis, um, or someone that's a candidate for it because they have um, slight tears, they have poor cervical rotation. They have poor neck rotation. So, is it the neck that's causing a lot of the that's feeding those elbow issues, or is the elbow issue feeding the neck? I would say the neck is feeding the elbow, but again, it's it's just factors we need to look at, and we're always trying to figure out. Just because someone was diagnosed with a labral tear and has a labral tear and they're going to have labral surgery, is that really what's causing the pain? And we don't – and a lot of times we don't know um, if they went directly to surgery and didn't try conservative therapy first.
0: Do you think that surgery is done too often, like that maybe people should try to rehab more first? Or is there, um, wait, think, is there a percentage know, of tear that, that you say like no matter what, they have to have surgery?
1: That's no, I think, you know, what, uh, being at a threshold that you're that you're in pain enough to require surgery is has so many moving factors that it's that's well out of my scope. You know, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a surgeon like that's that, that's not my my scope of practice. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of surgeons that that see that that we've worked with that see a little tear and they're like, we got to fix it because orthopedically they need it fixed to make it look, you know, quote unquote normal. Um, maybe those people need it. Maybe they don't. I think, I think the, the surgeons, we, I've been very fortunate to work with some great surgeons and the really good surgeons from my experience value conservative care first because they want, they know that surgery should be the last option. And again, it's about using the right tool at the right time for the right person. They want to have great outcomes because those outcomes is something they can tout to their to their patient population. Nobody wants nobody wants a bad, um, you know, shoulder repair on their record. That's not that's not what they're looking for. And they also want to make sure that they've crossed off all the dominoes um, for conservative treatment first, as well as um, insurances. Now, a lot of times, will not allow you to go in for surgery prior to doing six, eight, 12 weeks of conservative therapy because because they know that conservative therapy is going to be exponentially cheaper than, than surgery. So the money is a driver of that too. So there, I wouldn't say that we're having too many surgeries. I think that just too many people are are getting injured and not taking care of themselves um, quick enough is is likely the issue.
0: Okay. We got a, another question here. I wanted to make sure I got to. Um, this person asked, um, what like what could be the cause of a stress fracture in the elbow, um, and he says that there's nothing wrong with the tendon. I know this might be hard to uh, figure out. Yeah, and seeing.
1: and again the 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 stress fractures or stress reactions, um, that's that's something that we rely heavily on with the orthopedist. But other things that come into mind immediately is like we would always refer out and get blood work checked. Um, the amount of times that that. Someone comes back with low vitamin D levels or some kind of other infections, things like that. And those, and, and again, it's about, it's about having that team of figuring out, you know, let's check the boxes on all this stuff. Internal, internal medicine uh, disorders leading to orthopedic disorders is not uncommon, um, especially, you know, with a lot of the nutrition stuff that we have out right now where, where most people are not eating – most people are overweight and malnourished. So that means they, they're they have they have excess calories and not enough nutrients in their diet, which means that that they're they're not optimally moving and, and performing because because of you know they don't have the nutrients to support that. So making sure you check those boxes as well. And most orthopedists will take a look at that as well, just to rule some things out because if you don't fix if you have a vitamin D deficiency and a calcium deficiency and that caused a stress reaction because you're using your arm a lot or our mechanics are poor and, and you can't handle the stress and whatnot, even a surgery that may go in and, and correct some of those issues isn't gonna fix the long term problem that you're deficient in vitamin D and, and calcium, you know?
0: I never thought about that. That's a good I mean, that's a really good good point there.
1: I never well, never thought but, yeah. about that. It, it, again it's it's just having enough you know I know just enough about that stuff to say I don't want to touch that case so I'm gonna refer yeah. that out right away <laughs> yeah no that's
0: that's a smart move right there um, let's see we got another question on here uh, let's see I'm not gonna ask that one um, okay someone said that they recently tore their labrum due to a dislocated shoulder um, any tips on how to make um, his return any easier
1: yeah uh, definitely you know, get a really good therapist, um, and a really good surgeon because those without a good surgery, you're, you're asking, um, if he, if he's a surgery candidate without a good surgery, you're, you're starting way behind the eight ball in terms of actually having the opportunity to, um, have a full recovery. Uh, and then having a therapist that works with lots of shoulders, there's plenty of therapists That only work with a handful of shoulders a year and none of them are throwing a baseball 90 miles an hour Um, You want someone that's going to be doing that all the time when we get elderly patients in that want to do uh, You know conservative treatments things like that There's a lot of other moving parts that that with an elderly population that may not be a good candidate for for myself or for someone on our therapy staff and we will refer those out because we want to get the patient the best outcome so for him you know, finding a great therapist that can evaluate that case, case individually. And then looking at the the metrics of the 90 mile hour formula, that's really simple. Um, using that as a guideline of maybe not hitting all of them right away, but working towards those metrics is a really important goal. Um, what are your thoughts on using, um, weighted baseballs? I think again, right tool, right time for the right athlete. There's, there's plenty of people that, that, Will benefit from a weighted ball program designed for them. Um, there's plenty of people that are super high risk that are, you know, too small, too weak, have poor movement patterns, um, don't have don't have enough um, of the correct strength metrics in terms of, you know, like you said before, decelerating eccentric control. So what do you say like if that?
0: They, if they can, if they can do the 90 minute ninety mile per hour formula, like you talked about, all those exercises, like the pull up, all that stuff, would that would they be a
1: good candidate for weighted balls? Maybe, maybe not. My my thing is is I look at I look at weighted balls in two categories. One is do you is this going to improve your movement patterns? So we can either improve our movement patterns or make them worse. I'm a big believer that it's it's a zero sum game. Either we're moving more optimally or less. So, are you moving more optimally by using a particular weighted ball? If yes, great. Then that's probably a good tool to use. The other thing we look at is the force velocity curve. So, the force velocity curve, uh, based on based on um, you know all of our all of our data points and based on physics, is that if you take a baseball in and running and gun at five miles an hour. Uh, excuse me, a five ounce baseball and you run run running gun 90 miles an hour. We, we know that for every ounce of ball you add, so a six ounce ball, um, every ounce of ball you add, you're going to take away three miles an hour. So what we'll see is, is you give a kid, um, you know, running gun 90 miles an hour on a five ounce ball. He should be 87 with a six ounce ball. What a lot of times, and then We'll see, you know, eighty-four on a seven-ounce ball. A lot of times, we'll give a guy um, that that seven-ounce ball, and he's ninety-one on a running gun. Whereas, whereas he should be, you know, eighty-four, which means there's a blip in that force-velocity curve. It means he's not either. His mechanics are changing with that ball, which goes back to the mechanical flaw that we were talking about. Um, so he's more optimal with that seven-ounce ball, or he is better tuned in terms of force output with that seven ounce ball, which means he probably has some trunk stability issues and probably just is able to get more out of that seven ounce ball than he can with the five ounce ball. That is something that needs to be fixed. We've taken guys that are that have a nine ounce ball that is thrown harder than their five ounce ball which which doesn't make which makes zero sense if you if you're new to this category. It's about understanding how you're going to implement that and figure out what's right and wrong with it. And for most guys, it's going to be a mechanical flaw and that's something you got to dig into. I think the biggest issue with weighted balls is that they're not used the gross generalization of weighted balls are not used for the athlete. It's literally, "Hey, I'm going to sign up for this weekend velocity camp." they use weighted balls. Little Johnny throws, you know, 30 throws in a pivot pick. And, you know, big Timmy, who's, you know, 22 years old and deadlifts 600 pounds is doing the same 30 pivot picks with the same seven ounce ball. It's like, okay, like that, that doesn't make sense. It needs to be designed for the athlete. So it's the same, same thing we're talking about with hitting with you. It, it you got to use the right tools for your athletes to get what you're trying to accomplish. Gotcha, man. I, I really appreciate uh, you
0: coming on today. I know you're a busy, busy man. Um, you know, I'll make sure to, you know put out your, put out the links to um, to everything on social media. And then obviously, everyone, you know, go check out that 90 mile per hour formula. Um, I'm intrigued by it. I got no doubt. And again, I learned a lot um, just from this episode, just by listening to you and, you know, I don't have a pitching background, but it definitely helps um, anytime I can, you know, help in any way, even just for, for a high school kid. So again, man, really appreciate you coming on today and um, great, great stuff. Thanks
1: for having me.